Most of us are born into a capitalist world. We are like the famous fish in the fishbowl that asks the question, what is water exactly? Will our futures be capitalist? Will they be a continuation of the capitalism that we have been born into? Or could it be something different? The long-term trend basically is away from work as the central factor in my identity as it has been historically. And I think it's moving away from that. And I think what the great resignation more or less is, you know what, the, screw that. I am, if you will, I'm more than my work. Yeah. yeah. And I am not gonna, I don't want that to be the central feature of my life. And so it's, it's raising questions that I'm like, oh good, finally we're asking like, what the hell, what are we doing? What is, what are our priorities here? What is the meaning of this? And just saying, it isn't this, <laughs> what yeah. we've been doing, Ain't it now? Yeah. Because we live in this system, we have to keep playing the game to some degree to survive. But those questions are now out there, and I think that's a really healthy development. That's today's guest, Andy Hines, who we last spoke to over a hundred podcasts ago in podcast thirty-seven called "Playing the Long Game." Andy is an associate professor in and the program coordinator of the Foresight Program at the University of Houston, which is the world's longest running Foresight Program. Andy is here today to talk about his upcoming book called After Capitalism. Welcome back to FutureBot, Andy. Thanks for having me. I guess it's 100 episodes later. <laughs> yes, episode 37, playing the long game. You've been playing the long game and you played the long game through COVID. So tell me, what was that like for Andy Hines and the Houston? Disaster is great business for the futures game, unfortunately, right? Yeah. Our whole reason for being is to avert these kinds of things or be better prepared for them. Nonetheless, when they do happen, it creates that question of what is going on. And we doubled our program. Almost tripled yeah. over the course of the pandemic. <laughs> so okay. good news for us, bad news for the world. And was that just expanding the American intake or were you actually pulling in a more global audience? Yeah, we've always been maybe 10%-ish international and we didn't really see any significant change in that. It's probably the best news for us. We were already virtual before the pandemic. About two years ago, we switched from hybrid to fully virtual. So that when the pandemic hit, we essentially didn't have to change anything. And so you can imagine when students would ask us, hey, can we do this? We're like, we're already doing it. <laughs> Very foresightful. Yeah. <laughs> That's not why we did it. But sometimes sometimes just doing, quote, the right thing. And even if it doesn't necessarily have a specific end goal, this is a smart thing to do. And then, you know, at some point down the road, you go, oh, yeah, that was a smart thing to do. Yeah, I think Hale says that you move towards the future and the future moves towards you. I love it. I love it. So you've been busy. You were foreshadowing. I might say you were foreshadowing a book, but when we talked last time, there was something around this kind of what's next for capitalism or after capitalism, and you've continued to bubble away with that and... It's now a something, isn't it? <laughs> Indeed. I would say I'm just extolling the benefits of pandemics here. This is going to be an odd <laughs> interview because it gave me a chance to really buckle down and write. 
yeah, less to do, more time on your hands. So I really did put the nose to the grindstone, so to speak, and cranked it out. Because I've been working on this topic for about 10 years, yeah. pretty loosely, yep. but I finally had a chance to finish it. And I would say this, I wish I had finished it five years ago, but it's too late for that. But the explosion of interest, and I think yep. some of it is related to the pandemic, but not all of it, but some of yep. it, right? It's just gone crazy. Every day there's a, yep. a dozen stories about the end of capitalism. Yeah. It's again, once you start to have the idea, then suddenly you see it around you. It's the classic confirmation bias. When the confirmation bias is removed, suddenly you are aware of the future around you. So I'm like, hurry up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So for listeners and for the purpose of our chat, do you want to just give us a five-minute high level of the book and the theory and all that sort of stuff behind it, and then we can drill into some of the things? Absolutely. So the idea is simple. It says that um, a, one of the first books I read about the future was the this idea of the image of the future, that successful societies, civilizations historically had this image that they were sense of the future where they wanted to get to. And in recent times, we just haven't had that. Or there's really no positive, compelling, guiding images of the future out there that we're working towards. We're just kind of lost. And so the book basically went through and tried to find most ideas about the primarily economic future, but a lot will bleed into that because of the system's interconnections. But what have people said about the long-term future after capitalism? And I think to your earlier point, we've came across this idea that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. It's so baked into our, it seems almost into our DNA. Now, we know that's not true, but that's the feeling. But the last three to five, maybe 10 years, we've started to see the real questions being raised. So I said, all right, what's being said about the long-term future? So really, it's a work primarily of synthesis and just pour through dozens and dozens of books and set up a scanning library, all the sort of standard research that futures. What we do. And pulled it together into three, what I think are three buckets, which I'm calling three images of the future. And putting them out there for us to chew on, look at, kick the tires on and say, does this sound like a future that we want? And so to just really starting to fill the void. And I hope others will do it too. Yeah. So again, the point is not to forecast what the future could be. Each of the scenarios are themselves normative, but they make sense around sets of values and logics and the way the world works and that kind of thing. And they're really there as conversation starters for us to develop a literacy around what are the pathways towards alternatives to capitalism as it currently stands. I love the idea of conversation starters. And I think there is something a little bit different about images than a typical, I guess you'd say, scenario project. And I was fortunate that Wendy Schultz is teaching with us and she's done a lot of work on images and I dug into that. And developed this whole template idea of, if you will, what are the components of an image? Because it is a little bit of a different beast than a the scenario. Without getting into the, all that sort of mechanics, it was fun to do that. And you're right, because we're not trying to get to here are three answers. It's basically saying here are three ideas. And there is some support for them because, again, I synthesized it from pieces that are already out there. And again, 
have the conversation and say, what is attractive or not attractive? And maybe version one is a little rough, but hopefully we get to a version five or six that, that looks compelling. Right now, there's nothing. There's only a model that's falling apart in front of us. Yes. And there are people that are doubling down on the model and there are people that are simply saying there is no alternative and there are others who are, if you like, locked into the end of the world. Not surprisingly, the data for archetypes was a useful broad frame. So does that helps to do some rough orientation? It does, indeed. So while I did get to the end point, so to speak, the, the ultimate images, and I really think this is a 20 or 30 year deal. So this is not like something that's around the corner, although <laughs> it could be. Could but, be. Like the pandemic, it was always 30 years out until it was happening. Point taken. It could, but I, I would say best guess would be that it's going to take a while to get there. And actually, I think that's the best case. One of the things that came up in the research was, I think moving too quickly to any one of these or any image of the future overnight, that would be semi-disastrous as well, because we're just not prepared. That the, Moving to a whole new system, and capitalism is, it's really the global operating system for most of the world. It's not just the economic system. It's because of its connections into technology and social trends and governance that you can't even you can't even untangle it anymore. Just before we launch off into after capitalism, any historian would say that capitalism is not a thing. It's it has always been a work in progress. It has never been a finished product. Yeah. It has already changed significantly depending on how we see the story arc of capitalism. So it's already a hybrid model that we have now, but maybe there's some fundamental assumptions in the baked-in mm -hmm. model that just are not consistent going forward. Yes, yeah, so one of the fun parts, the whole thing was fun, but I put together a list of all the different varieties of capitalism, and I think the list was at 88 last time I checked. <laughs> and to your point, even though if we speak of it as a real thing, even though it's a system, it morphs, right? It morphs, yeah. adapts, and it has done it so many times. Uh, I guess the argument here is that we're at the end of the road. And that said, however... When we talk about all that's been written about the end of capitalism, there is much, much more written about how to fix capitalism than there is on how to invent a new system. Yeah. So there is still plenty of ideas about we can make this the most current popular one and stakeholder capitalism is going to save us. My sense of it is when you look at the data, you look at what's going on, that there isn't another fix in there and that it's just literally at the end of the road, that there's no place else for it to really successfully go. Yeah. So the big thing or the big forces that are breaking up the idea that we can sustain and even tweak the existing model of capitalism to make it work in the future, what are the big things that are making that, as you say, make it the end of the road? Definitely the inequality problem. As you, you probably remember, we teach a whole class in systems thinking. And what systems thinking says is the structure of a system will produce what it produces. Yep. Capitalism will produce inequality. It's just what it does. It's doing exactly what it does. And you can, you can try to make that a little, mitigate it a little bit, but you can't stop it. You can't, that is a feature and it's just, it's gotten to the point that I think the world looks at that and says, boy, this is what it produces. And we're not, we're, if you will, we just don't like what it's producing. So the inequality is just, 
and you can make it a little bit better, but that's it's that's just what it does. And you can't can't blame it for that, right? No, it, um, it's doing its job. It's doing its job, which is to give success yes. to the successful. And one of the points I make along that line is let's not demonize it because to an extent, it did its job. Now, I know that it could have been better. There's lots of things that would have been nicer about it. But in a sense, it's if you say its job was to grow the economy and produce more wealth, it did that. Yeah. Now, it didn't do it equitably and, all, and so on. And it's brought us to the brink of environmental collapse. But in the sense, the system in terms of what it was intended to produce, economic growth, it did. Yep. Now, so what's changed? It's just the context in which it's operating. It doesn't fit anymore, right? So it's no longer a fit for the for our current and future context. So it, it, in a sense, that's why they don't blame capitalism. It just does. It's doing what it does. Yep. It's it just doesn't fit anymore. People have also changed too, haven't they? What people expect from their nations, their lives have changed through that same time that capitalism was doing what capitalism does. Yeah, well, certainly the existential threat of climate and carrying capacity, that's real, it's recognized, and certainly intolerable. But that's a pretty obvious one, right? And that's just staring us right in the face. But alongside that, are the value shifts that say these gross inequality rates, not only within countries, but between the global north and the south, is no longer acceptable. Our value systems just don't accept it. In the heyday of capitalism, the heyday of modern values, competition and victory to the winner was okay. And the emerging values say, no, that's sort of weather take all stuff. No, we're not going for that. This idea that we need to be more equal, participatory, as they become the new priorities, again, the capitalist system just doesn't match. Yeah. And and it's not tolerable. We're not going to take it anymore. The assumptions of capitalism that the best ideas win and success to the successful, but that it was also on a presumption that most people that were on the winning team didn't know what it was like to be on the losing team. Whereas well, now yeah. most people can find out what the losing team looks like. Yeah, there's some pretty decent research that individuals will recognize this, but they always think they're going to be the ones that win. <laughs> and now the inequality rate has just gotten, even in the U.S., which we're among more affluent countries, we're middle of the pack towards the back of the pack. But I've been using this idea of it's the 0.1% super wealthy, the 9.9%. People like myself supporting that to do working real hard. And then you've got 80, what, nine, sorry, 90% that are really in this sort of netherland. And there's the middle class idea, it's gone. Yeah. Pretty much. And population's amazing because so much of the world is so young now. <laughs> uh huh. And we think everybody's old, we think everybody's my age. <laughs> And yet, you know, there are some incredibly youthful countries out there with enormously young population bulges. And when you have that and you have inequality, then you have got the raw material of significant social uprising. Right. Now, the hope here is that we're smart enough to make that transition peacefully by choice, but we're going to make it one way or another, and it may yeah. not be the alternative is not pleasant. We know 
historically large bulges of youth with nothing to do and nowhere to go. We know how that's going to turn out. We don't need to be too good a futurist to work out where that one ends up. That's right. And another piece of that, because it is one of the ideas that, sorry, you talked about after capitalism, how do you get there? And I think it's a whole separate book to really dig into the pathway. But I'm pretty clear that the idea of uprising, revolt, revolution, it's time to pick up the guns. It's hard to see any way that doesn't turn out to be maybe even worse than the situation we're in now. It probably yeah. will be. Yeah. So without a sense of where you want to go, and we've seen that historically, right? When yep. there's no plan for what happens when you win, it doesn't usually work out too well. The people with power, they have the guns already. And if they don't want to go, it doesn't matter how much civic uprising you create. It's very easy to create Syria out of a civil uprising. Exactly. And that's what I say. Even though you might say 20 to 30 years, that's too long. It's really not. And even then, that really belies getting to work pretty damn soon. Now, the good news alongside that is when you dig deep and you look at what is happening at the local level around the world, there are some very positive things that are happening. They're small and they're they're not to scale. Um, so there are definitely positive developments, but they're dwarfed by the larger kind of headlines that we see today. So baseline capitalism continues to tweak, continues to adjust. The excesses of capitalism are the excesses of capitalism. We try to tweak. That's a possible future for beyond capitalism, which is just more of capitalism somehow tempered. But you found other possible pathways to alternatives, didn't you? Yes. And so if we can use our three horizons model, which I love, right? So if you think of the first horizon as the continuation of capitalism, which may go longer than we think. The three images of the future are the Horizon 3 new systems. There is this whole Horizon 2 zone of interesting possibilities. And it's <laughs> messy really, bit, as I call it. Yes, it would be messy. And we see some of that already. We have one set of concepts they call like the collaborative sharing platforms. We put a lot of the ideas we're seeing around sharing economy. And this is the interesting thing, like as any Horizon 2, they have one foot in Horizon 3, one foot in the new, one foot in the old. Yep. And so there are, there's a whole set of sustainability driven concepts that are basically how do we fix or reform capitalism? And again, they have a lot of really nice new ideas, but ultimately still tied to the existing way of doing things. So I, I stick those in Horizon 2. And so not quite there. Even the Horizon 2 would be a little better, right? A little, but it's messy. Yep. Uh, and maybe that's the transition. Maybe we have to go through that messy part to ultimately get to the Horizon 3 images. And that's where uh, things are experimental. They fail, they succeed. Someone else tweaks them. Yeah, well, there's another bit of research we've been able to do at Houston. It wasn't related to the capitalism, but it was more around the Three Horizons idea. And we went back and looked at roughly 78 scenario sets, historical scenario sets. We looked at more, but 78 more or less fit the pattern we were looking for. And said, how did you how they were forecast to play out? So let's just say we had the future of food, right, in 1980, and then it said 2000 was. So how did it actually play out? How close were they? What was the actual pace of change? And so looking at several dozen of those, what we're finding is that baseline Horizon 1 future is lasting much longer than we think, which I'm not sure it was, we were very happy about, but it's, oh my gosh, like... 
this thing is still in the baseline 15 years later. And we found that with limits to growth. Limits to growth, unfortunately, is tracking exactly what the Model 1 said it would if we didn't change. And guess what? We haven't changed. We're still trying to play the winner-takes-all game on a finite planet. And some people are going to win for a long period of time, and it would appear that more and more are going to keep falling off the wagon. Interesting. So many, and especially the keynoting pop futurist, it is, it would be maybe a, a little bit more guilty of this than the quote average futurist. But we hear so much the rapid pace of change, tuna, and there's all these acronyms for buka, and oh my God, it's changing so fast. And then when you look, when you step back and look at systems, it's like, oh my God, it's not fast at all. No, it's <laughs> it, not fast it, enough. It it's not fast enough. When you look at the actual changes, you can see, because we do scanning, right? If you do your scanning, you can see the early signs of change. And a lot of times it's 20 or 30 years ago. Just as a quick example, I saw a story yesterday that the neighborhood in California where Musk and the Boring Company had the prototype Hyperloop tunnel, yep. it's been sitting there for six years and it hasn't moved. They haven't done a damn thing to it. And the residents finally said, will you take this piece of junk? And they did. Yeah. So think about 2016, all the hype and hoopla about the Hyperloop, blah, 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 blah. Six years later, they haven't done a damn thing. And there was a little tweet from Musk himself saying, someday we hope to start this up again. <laughs> we will make it happen. So it's like nothing happened in six years after all that. And I think that's more common. That's not the exception. It's the rule. I'm a bit of a history nut when it comes to futures thinking and I look at apocryphal social change and one of the things that I've always paid attention to is the whole franchise and the voting process and how you know changing the voting franchise from just males with property to general males then the addition of women has fundamentally changed capitalism but I'm asking the question, when are we going to continue to broaden the franchise? When are we going to let younger people even into the franchise? To me, I'm quite surprised that we've really gone now for a significant period of time holding that somehow 18 or 21 is magic voting stage because the kids themselves are simply saying, we want to say. One, a very common feature of most of the images are the concepts. So if somebody wrote a book, I called that a concept, and then it fits into one of the three images. But so a very common theme that came out was the African capitalism world is much more local. It's much more participatory. It's much more direct. That theme, it just hits you right between the eyes. And it's not saying that we ignore global things, but it's saying it's primarily a local world, right? And that ladders up to global concerns. But that's how we enable, manage, if you will, how do we manage a commons, right? How do we do that in common? That theme is huge, loud and clear. So to your point, if successful, it will be quite a different change to, I guess, enfranchising people to have a say. So do you want to just maybe just sweep through just for the listeners? So yes. what are the three class of images that you saw or cluster of images that you saw for Horizon 3? Absolutely. So the first cluster, I started out calling it the sustainable commons, but I've settled on circular commons. Yeah. 
And maybe it's a little controversial, but I just feel like the the sustainability concept, God bless it, but it's just too tied to capitalism now. It's another one. It's done its job, but I really feel like the circular economy framework hopefully gets us into a different headspace. And I really like the concept. I think it's a great concept. So that was the reason for that word change. And the commons is this, again, this idea, and, and there are examples, again, small scale about how do we manage our resources in common? And then you just extend the idea of what is a resource. And so it is the environmentally driven of the three. And it's really confronting the growth imperative. Yep. And I, I didn't start out this way, Peter. I swear to you that I really was agnostic on growth or maybe it's a steady state, but I'm now convinced that we, at least for a time, need a degrowth trajectory. I just can't see any other way around. And the circular commons gets to that, right? This idea yep. of a, how do we do a degrowth? How do we, how do we institutionalize some version of a circular economy? And how do we manage not only resources, but ourselves in a more direct democratic approach? So I'll do the high level and then we'll go back in. Yep. The non-workers paradise, hopefully you get the play on the workers paradise. Because <laughs> this is really the post-work future. Yep. And it's the same thing. It's You can see signs of this momentum heading this towards this future. Still, the end point, I think, scares people. But basically, it says, look, it's not saying that we don't have to do what might be called work or we don't have to do activities with an intent. But you don't need a job as a way to get access to the wealth of society. And they're, really, the key to this is the inevitable redistribution that needs to happen. And that's a scary thing. The third one is tech-led abundance. And I'll just be honest, I have a little bit of skepticism about this. And it is a legit image. It is out there and there are adherents and it is popular and there's a lot to speak to it. But it basically says that technology creates such an immense abundance to a degree of wealth that it essentially solves problems for us. And there's some interesting, maybe there's side effects or possibilities now whether that's a super intelligent AI or a new human species that's actually running this abundant world is, I guess, open for discussion. But definitely, I felt like it was a legit, a legit set of ideas yeah. and an image. So if that makes sense, it's really, you have your environmentally driven, which is the circular commons. You have your social and politically driven, which is your non-workers paradise. And you have your technology driven, which is the tech-led abundance. And it, you're probably already thinking, isn't it a bit of all three? And yeah, probably. Yeah. If I can dial back to the first one about the circular commons is an interesting notion because we're seeing it play out in a very early form now with the conversation around carbon emissions. And not every country starts from the same place that we need to come up with a circular commons. You talk about there has to be a degrowth period. Maybe there are parts of the world that need to grow fast <laughs> and there are parts of the world that need to degrowth. That this question of equality, that not everyone's starting from the same place on the racetrack. And are we yeah. trying to set are we trying to set what the finish line looks like? And are we trying to finish up with a situation where Everybody gets to the finish line at roughly the same time. I'm going to use that. I like that idea. Yeah, because so the emphasis is certainly on the affluent countries, right? And there's no question because they're the culprits to some extent. And certainly when you talk about the growth thing, right? And 
I think it's part of actually the non-workers paradise and the post-work future. So what's the work? All right, so we don't need to work anymore in the affluent countries. Granted, we have not historically done a very good job of helping our neighbors, but that doesn't mean we can't. But what better work to do than to help the rest of the world develop? Now, again, I recognize that that hasn't gone so well all the time. That, to me, seems like a noble thing to do if you don't hmm. have to go to a job. So to your point, it's not degrowth for everybody. It's degrowth for the growers. And even as you framed that one, Andy, you've actually gone outside the notion of the nation state. Or you've placed national sovereignty within a more, almost a global sovereignty. We can see this happening to us, right? As an idea is on its way out is when it screams the loudest. So we're having all this sort of semi-fascist nation state stuff screeching. We're screeching about it now because we recognize that it's on its way out to some degree. Yeah. And really it is. It's that global concern, but the action really is happening at the local. And, and that's happening everywhere anyway. Governments are more increasingly stalemated and not getting anything more and more of the actual decision-making work and authorities is already diffusing down to the local level out of necessity. And I think that's, that's also the long-term trend. So Nation when state. you talk about those three images, I would imagine as you collect data on them, what you would find is countries as they currently are now are on the path to some of them or further down the track. Is there examples in the world that you'd point to that show some of the pathways towards those happening? Excellent point. Yeah. So I would say that the emphasis is primarily on the affluent countries, but it's actually primarily the U.S. And the U.S., I think, for better or worse, has been the standard bearer, the vanguard of pure capitalism. So in a sense, what happens here is is certainly of primary interest. I gave the same talk. You saw the one in Finland and I uh, did it in Germany last month. And the Germans were already there. <laughs> I'm like, you're not. But I mean, there's, are they, fa oh, absolutely. Are they further along? Is Finland further along? Absolutely. Yeah. So yes, there are countries or regions or even cities, right? Neighborhoods. The U.S. is, as usual, we're a little bit behind the eight ball. And when you talk about, about how capitalism has to evolve, and one of the governors I would have thought on holding capitalism as it currently is are governance structures, political governance structures that operate around the world. Representative democracy, but you've got to ask the question, how representative a democracy is representative democracy? My sense of this, and it, it, maybe it's not going to be as much featured in the book, but I hope it's a living kind of project that goes on as long as I'm kicking around. To me, the, a lot of the right-wing kind of conservative, however you want to put that movement against, it's really against this, I think, this progressive tech future. It's saying we want to keep things... We want to go back to that simpler life. I actually, I'm very sympathetic to that. As part of the research for the book, I went deep into some of the, the right, the crazy right, if you will, just there's a crazy left. And while there's a lot of you know, questionable ideas in there, some of the basic I make some sense. And you can imagine on the other side, on the left, you know, not that it's necessarily a left thing, but it's associated with the left that this using technology for progress could lead us into this kind of matrix of dystopia. I am very sympathetic to that sort of feeling that we want to slow things down because unchecked 
tech progress mm, is not something that we're <laughs> has its own problems or maybe even has worse problems. Yeah, I'll have a podcast coming out shortly with Roger Spitz, who's involved in a thing called the Disruptive Futures Institute. And he's got a, a guidebook coming out. And one of the topics that Roger talks about is as we have the rise of super intelligence, we also have the rise of super stupidity, that it doesn't happen that we necessarily all become educated. We actually can become deliberately uneducated. Is there an assumption as you look at the future that people, in fact, are prepared to learn and be open to changing or are people potentially wanting to just simply almost not do it you know i guess the one of the ways that i've looked at this idea that the right is just saying we don't want to go into what they see as a high-tech dystopic future is there is actually an opening right there is some place where we can talk about how do we manage the pace of what might be called progress or manage the pace of technology so i think there is some common ground and in a commons-based approach, in a non-workers' paradise approach, I could see how that could actually be negotiated. Now, it might be difficult to actually get, get the groups to talk, but I could see it. Whereas right now, it's hard to see any basis for how the two sides are just so dug in the ground. But I think there is an opening, and I think a lot of it is just around this sort of sense that we are just flying into this tech-led future without really, is that where we really want to go? And I think that's a conversation we want to have. Even though I have tech-led abundance in there, and I put it as a, quote, positive image, but it could just as easily veer off in the other direction and be a very negative. You could argue that some of the other scenarios too, even the notion of a circular economy, doesn't necessarily mean a great place to live. I'm thinking of the Hunger Games model there's a model that says we're going to get to a circular economy by simply very few people having anything. Yeah, degrowth could also spiral, I suppose. And that's funny. When So one of the things you do in the archetype approach is you also have a collapse future, right? That is one of the things. And the way I handled it in the book is I just looked at each of the three futures and said, All right, there is definitely, in contrast to the circular commons, there is a environmental collapse, very plausible, a non-workers paradise that could end up in a civil war, tribal war, secession. We can't solve those social political problems. And the tech-led abundance, if you believe the superintelligence, maybe the superintelligence isn't so happy with the human race. <laughs> <laughs> that may not be the, uh, the future that we want. Obviously, you aren't doing a forecast, but what's the time frame? You've said possibly not too fast because we've got a lot of things we need to redesign and relearn about, but what's your time horizon for these images? Yes, definitely a lot about that. Now, narrowed it down to 20 to 30 years. Again, that seems plausible looking back at the historical record. I think that even though, again, you could say that we're in the verge of climate. Some people would say we're really close to that. We're really close to civil, at least so it's close, but the hope is that we can muddle through that period. So right now, the problem is if we were to come to that moment, the only idea out there is socialism and communism, which I have nothing against. I think they were noble ideas in their own way, but at least in the U.S., those are complete loser concepts. Unfair or not, it's the easiest way to sort of block change. Is there socialism. It's actually Sohail's used futures, right? Yes. We're, we're dragging out the only yep. thing we know, the used futures from the past that have some pretty substantial baggage. 
So we better get something in there quick or that's that's the kind of question. And we see it now. We're having like the socialism versus capitalism. It's, oh, no, we, that's not the debate we want to have. Socialism, capitalism is, of course, a political conversation. It just struck me that by yours is an economic social image of the future rather than necessarily a political. You've almost given politics as the lag factor rather than the lead factor in it. You're saying economically and socially, we will demand a political system that allows this form of activity and living to operate. And what I was going to remind you was that's exactly what Montfleur did in South Africa when they wanted to talk about the end of apartheid. And the Montfleur scenarios that we know were terribly influential in changing the whole dialogue around post-South Africa were economically based. They weren't actually based on politics. They were based on economics. The reason I settled on the economics was just because that's where it seemed like most of the juice was. But yeah, I I mean, the, the political landscape, that's just such a minefield. And to your point, it's also, it is terribly behind, right? My gosh. So... To think that, that it's very plausible that could happen, right? That you could have a <laughs> you could have a politically driven future, but yeah, it would it would, that would be a shock to the system. Yeah. yeah. Now you've said a generation effectively have said within a generation this will happen, and that of course triggers for me that we're talking about kids born almost the kind of early early twenty first century becoming the politically dominant group on the planet in a place like America, for example. So you're talking about generational change carrying this world. You're talking about the old generation that's hung on to the old capitalism effectively dying off at enough of a rate that the new ideas and the new generation, to what extent is are your images tied in with generational change? Yeah, I'm not a big generations fan. I think it's a secondary influence rather than a primary. And I really do think the values change is the primary but certainly values change skews younger. And really the vanguard of after capitalism is the teens, early 20s. And that's a group that I think right now is probably just a bit stunned. They've <laughs> just gone through this apocalyptic preview. And I do think that they'll regain their footing. And I think that's the group that's going to say, this is bullshit. The way that things are playing out, this is not what we want. And it's going to take them some time to integrate into the power structure, so to speak, and probably then tear it down. But yeah, so that's where I'm, I guess I'm putting my... Uh... Pre-pandemic, they were the ones working in the gig economy. They were the ones who who could not buy into the housing because they've been locked out of that. We've seen all around the world, you've had, had your debt forgiveness process with yes. some of the student loans. Even in developed countries like yours and mine, there are we know there are significant groups of 18, 20 to 30, who really feel the future that is the default future has got nothing to do with them. Exactly. And I think the great resignation, so to speak, Yeah, I, I do think that at some point, that at least a good portion of those folks are going to have to scurry back to work at some point. But it's really, it's capturing a long-term trend. The long-term trend basically is away from work as the central factor in my identity as it has been historically. And I think we're slowly moving away from that. And I think what the great resignation more or less is, you know what, the, screw that. I'm, I am, if you will, I'm more yeah. than my work. Yeah. 
And I am not going to, I don't want that to be the central feature of my life. And so it's, it's raising questions that I'm like, oh, good. Finally, we're asking like, what the hell, what are we doing? They, like those kinds of, what is, what are our priorities here? What is the meaning of this? And I'm just saying, it isn't this, you know, what yeah. we've been doing ain't it now. Yeah. Because we live in this system, we have to keep playing the game to some degree to survive. But those questions are now out there. And I think that's a really healthy development. So you have said this is not to have the last word. This is really to encourage the conversation. So what have you got planned for how the conversation happens? Are there particular things you want to do or promote amongst the community or people to have the conversations? Yeah, I do. As a futurist, you do so much. We do our day job, which is as important, teaching and working with clients, it's the regular stuff that we need to do to help people think better about the, and act better about the, with the future. But I like to have like at least one side project that's just my little pet. And for years, it was values. And now it's the uh, capitalism. I have some ongoing scanning and developing a Delphi, have a book page. And so hopefully just try to, if indeed it does stimulate some conversation, to just kind of keep that going and then watch. I think it's I think it's going to be really exciting. Even now, just to keep up with all the examples of things that are happening, I can't keep up. There's so many things happening. But again, it's all... It's too small and disconnected. But over time, I just think we'll start to see some larger scale, more exciting things. And that's, so I just, I kind of think of that as one of my pet projects as I get nearer, nearer to the end than the beginning. I'm going to ask you to make a forecast. If people are interested, you have got videos up on your website of talks you are giving around it, which actually lays a lot of the stuff out. So people should go and hunt those down and look and have a look at them. But when might they get their hands on the book? I'm hoping it's spring of 23. So first draft, pretty a pretty good first draft in hands of the publisher. And <laughs> back to our great resignation point, short staff and just working through a backlog. It's everywhere, right? Yep. Even though it's making my daily life a little bit hectic, I... Really, I find it very positive that we're asking ourselves why we're doing this. And to me, that's a step on the road. Yeah, I agree. Look, Ant, it's always great to have a chat. We don't have enough, but it's always great to catch up again. Thanks again for coming back to the Future Pod and continuing the conversation. Well, if all goes well, I'll see you in another 100, 200 episodes, maybe. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. My guest today was Andy Hines. You'll find more details about the things that Andy spoke about in the show notes on the website. Andy is always a great researcher, thinker and communicator in our community and it's great to feature his craft again on the pod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support the pod, then please check out our Patreon, which you'll find a link to on our website. I'm Peter Hayward, saying goodbye for now.